Now, so we're continuing with Acts, uh, <clears throat> Acts reenacted, and and we're looking at the at Philip, the, Philip the evangelist. We're still continuing his journey of of discovery in the area of evangelism here. You remember in the last few weeks that we've learned that he's a Hellenized Jew. He's a Greek-speaking Jew who converted to Christianity, and then became one of the first deacons of the of the first century church. And from there, he then went on to become the first missionary into the neighboring region of a place called Samaria. Our sermon last week looked at the way a man like him was made up, and we had a sermon titled The DNA of an Evangelist. And, uh, and we looked at how he was made up, but also how the church, particularly the Hebraic-based Jerusalem church, was able to get alongside a guy like him. A solid evangelist, as we learned last week, is developed and empowered in four major ways. First, he's grounded in theology and well-taught in his experience of church. Two, he's learned over time how to correctly engage with people who, don't, who are not familiar with the church. He understands his role as a herald and an evangel, a bearer of good news and, a, and an announcer of the coming king, the coming Messiah. Three, he knows how to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a big deal that's a really big thing that we need and finally he has the full support of his local church if you picture if you ever tuned into sbs over the the course of this year and saw the tour de france and you see those guys peddling away down there and those grueling enduros and you always see one of those horrible skoda cars following them you know one of the yeah and and yeah that's the support vehicle you know that's what the church is to an evangelist the support vehicle that drives along and is cheering them on and is, is there to back them up every step of the journey. Now we're going to read about the people he reached and, uh, and the manner in which he reached them here. So we're going to go start at verse 9 of chapter 8 today and, and uh, I'll put my goggles on here to read this. And uh, we'll go through a bit of Bible here. Acts chapter 8 verses 9 to 24. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the power of God, the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, that nothing you have said may happen to me. And after they further proclaimed the word of God and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Wow. In the middle of a great new scene of spiritual revival in Samaria comes the story of the guy who was previously running the show spiritually. 
a local figure who has been named throughout and recognized throughout history, and we'll hear more about this later, is a guy named, we know him as Simon the Sorcerer here. Historically, they know him as a guy named Simon Magus. He's made a name for himself in this area as a sorcerer. He's been able to hold these people and many beyond for that matter. Some say his influence extended as far as Rome. And he's able to hold these people under the spell of his wonders and, and extravagant claims. And he's become a true guru to certain people. People for a long time have been amazed by what he appeared capable of doing. His work in magic and divination and his self-promotion was so effective that he became revered as the great power of God. And our text says that all people high and low revered him. You know, those people in all walks of life, that was silly people and smart people. All gave, him, you know, all gave him this sort of recognition. And scholars say that, that, that the Samaritans using a title like this was akin to actually referring him to him as the supreme deity. You know, there was a, and, you know, he, he even claimed to be a deity, and, and, and history says that he claimed to be a representative of one who came to earth to redeem men. This is, that, that, that's almost antichrist right there. Samaria had become a spiritual void. On one side, they were fighting with the Jews, and we learned about this last week, about the finer details of worship, you know, Mount Zion, Mount Gerizim, Torah law, all those sort of things. And in the end, those arguments were going to be nullified on both sides of the account pretty shortly anyway. And on the other side, we see that the anything-goes idolatrous presence in the nation. The end result was the realization of that well-known statement, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. The problem with this, however, is that while they were anticipating answers from an anticipated Messiah, they had forgotten where this Messiah was going to come from. Their lack of taking an actual stand and their over-tolerance of all walks of religious life has caused them to get swept up by the first charismatic man they found. As a result, they publicly elevated and deified a man for his magic without giving any heed to his character or his motives. And they were paying him handsomely to be their temporal, flesh-pleasing Messiah. This man had no intentions of enhancing their devotion or their true knowledge of any God. Instead, he was happy to receive worship and have his pockets lined for saying the right things, for manipulating the crowd and for performing tricks for the amusements of his admirers. I've learned something over time, and we see it evident in Samaria here that where there is a spiritual vacuum, something always fills it. A, new, you know, a few years prior to the story in our text, Jesus had come to the same area and was revealed as the true Messiah. And without doing a single miracle, was able to draw great crowds to follow him there. Since he left, and since the Great Commission had not been launched until this point, the vacuum was there again and it had been filled by a cheap substitute. Look, that's what happens today as well. If you were to ask any you know, if, look, many people in the 20 to 40 bracket, the people that we, you know, that sort of disappear from church nowadays and the, obviously the group that we're keen to win back in our church here and, and in our city for that matter and to reach into that, people, that age group of our, of our city. If you ask many people in that age group about their faith, you would hear a growing number of people referring to themselves as spiritual, but not religious. In fact, a recent survey, and I got that out, that was an article that was sent to me this week. A recent survey in the United States suggests that this accounts for about 20% of the population over there. 
that they would call themselves spiritual but not religious. Even atheists would say to people doing this survey that, that oh, I consider myself a spiritual person, but I want to leave religion out of this. Some of those in that area you know, who are people who gave the church a go but got their fingers burnt. Others are fascinated by the idea of a higher power governing the universe and even think Jesus is a good guy. But they won't identify with the church because they don't want to nail their colors to the mast of Christianity. One of my favorite books to, uh, on my bookcase is titled They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And it's a very good book that speaks really well into ministering to people like this who think this way. The issue with all this is that when you put your spiritual self out there without theological filters, you're going to absorb a whole lot of garbage. No one's spiritual self lies dormant. And if Jesus isn't occupying that spiritual space, something else will. Romans 1 tells us about the nature of mankind here. And it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him. But in their thinking, but the, their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. If we keep God at arm's length, we by nature pull other influences close instead. That's how it works. We always have something influencing our life. And the Samaritans were in that place. Jesus came and went. The people took Jesus no further, but they still kept their spiritual options open. And Simon, the sorcerer, filled the void. It was Matthew Henry who said that the non-Christian world of spiritual void, in that sort of setting, even devils will pass for deities. But then, of course, as we've been reading here, we see that Philip comes on the scene. And he reignites what Jesus started. The city responds to the gospel in a really powerful way. The church of Samaria was born. The unprecedented existence of a church outside of Israel, the people of God being birthed outside of what was previously a lineage thing, a genealogical thing, is now becoming a spiritual thing. This is huge. The people there were hungry, and Philip suddenly has his hands full with trying to teach all these new believers about this new life in Christ. And Peter and John, the Hebraic Jerusalem church, come along the Hellenistic evangelist and help lighten the discipleship load. That's the perfect picture of an evangelism and church getting behind him picture right there. And it's in this environment that Luke takes us on another amazing learning curve. Where to start with discipling new believers? And how to pick the genuine from the tire kickers? Does everybody know the term tire kickers? You look at a car, you have no intention of buying, you kick the tires, you walk away. Good. <laughs> when people appear to respond to the gospel and get close to you, what's real? What's fake? And where on earth do we start in teaching these people how to follow Jesus? This is important because right now there are churches in Australia today who actively resist the call to do evangelism. 
And one of the key reasons they think this way is because there is a risk that the new people that come in will do damage to the safe thing that they currently have. Some of you are going, oh, yeah, right. I don't believe you. I visited a church. I, I had a hard time once. Visited Sydney well before I lived there. We had an incident where we had a knife incident in our youth group in Perth. And it was a, it was a, a thing that I was trying to go, how on earth do we, do we keep our youth group safe? And all this. It was a really rough time for me. And so I went and, and I met a youth leader over in, 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 um, in the western suburbs of Sydney. And I asked him, he was going, oh, yeah, we had guns and all sorts of stuff. It was the most violent place on the planet. And we really had to rethink how we did things. And now you, you can't find a safer place in this, in this neighborhood. And I'm thinking, I'm all ears. Tell me what you did. I really want to grow from this. And he goes, well, this is what we did. I said, what do you do? Well, we did this and this. I said, that sounds great. I can do that. What about, so how do you go about reaching out to your community? And he looked at me and goes, well, this is what we do. We've got a block over there. There's a block over there. There's a neighborhood over there, neighborhood over there. And we believe that's what God wants us to reach. So we'll go there, 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 there. But the one directly across our road, we're not going there. And I'm like, why? I said, that's where the dangerous people are. We don't want them to come in. That should infuriate us. That should shock us. I was deeply shocked and I cut the conversation short and I said, thanks for your time. I'm going. That didn't stop. The risk of all that stuff didn't stop the first century church. In the church's earliest mission endeavor, it was clear that people would respond to the gospel in different ways. There will be those that receive the word with gladness and genuine change of heart. There'd be those that outright rejected the word. And there was another sinister group who would sit on the fence and look to see how much they could get out of this whole thing without changing a thing about themselves. Even Jesus, Jesus even predicted this would happen. In, in, in Matthew 13, we read one of Jesus' parables. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat, uh, weed among the wheat. And he went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, don't you, don't, didn't you sow good seed in our field? And where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he said. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while we are pulling the weeds, we may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. See, in this parable, a crop of poisonous, we understand this to be the parable of the tares and the wheat in some translations you have. You've got a, pro, a crop of poisonous tares introduced while everyone was sleeping or when everyone's guard down. Wheat and tares looked similar as they grew together, but it wasn't until they flowered that they showed what they definitely were, making it difficult to weed out without causing a disturbance to the product while you were trying to grow. These Samaritan new converts were at their most vulnerable. And tares, weeds, had been sown amongst their church. The stalk of tares was flowering, and Simon appeared, and we, it, he was becoming, becoming. It was becoming clear what he was. Initially, he was as convinced as everyone else about the wonders of God. He went public with his faith like everyone else. He got baptized with everyone else. And he aimed to get as close to Philip and the apostles as he possibly could. He was publicly identifying with the church, with Jesus, with everybody. He was doing all the public things. 
On the surface, an evangelist will be really excited by all that. And no doubt, the apostles were excited too. This would have been one of those amazing stories that they could take back to Jerusalem. The big head honcho guru, sorcerer, came to Christ and he's serving Jesus in Samaria. Yay! This will be the story of the lifetime to share. We all love to hear him. But his status as a false disciple is soon established. Tears are a weed and they spring up quickly. You only have to look at our nature strips some weekends to know how fast weeds go. I mean, the day after we mow that place, up come the yellow flowers. We've got a sea of yellow almost immediately. I swear we mow the lawns. We've got great people who do that. <laughs> but some Sunday mornings I go, my goodness. <laughs> Why? Because they come up as, far as, they, as quick as they're mowed. In the Jerusalem church, the terror of hypocrisy came up fast via Ananias and Sapphira. In Samaria, it rose up quickly via Simon. In today's church, it'll rise up quickly too. But if it didn't stop the spread of the gospel then, and it was being made available to all that were here with full knowledge of the risk of falsity, and if it didn't stop them then, it need not stop us today either. Instead, we can draw valuable lessons from what they encountered. And if we stay on our guard, we can ensure that the wheat is grown to maturity and the poison of the tares are kept at bay and given spiritual roundup. As we get into the rest of today's passage, we can see some key ways that we can identify the tares that come in with the wheat. Simon was a weed, but the majority were wheat. And through this account, we can deduct what a true disciple is by highlighting the things that Simon Magnus was not. By knowing the difference, we can then set our own goalposts on how we ourselves are able to offer discipleship for the Samaritans our evangelists bring in. And you know what? Let me put this out there. That starts next week. I'll explain that later. Three areas, three ways that we can initiate the steps of, of discipleship to new believers. Three ways we as a church can get alongside the evangelists that get in, the, that, you know, whatever we bring in, whoever comes into contact with Jesus. This is our starting point. These are the three things that we as the church can do to, uh, to help identify good disciples and make sure that they stay that way. First up, Samaritan new believers let their faith go deep. Simon remained shallow. There's a key difference right there. All right, Samaritan new believers let their faith go deep. We see for Simon and the rest of Samaria, it was clear that, the, that Philip was bringing the city, you know, that, that what Philip was bringing to the city was the real deal. When, while Simon came boasting of his exploits, Philip came with a message that did as much as possible to elevate Jesus, not himself. He made it clear as a herald that he was coming to pronounce the arrival of the true Messiah. He pointed to the word of God and how it was fulfilled, not by his own appearing, but like, like Simon claimed, but through the Jesus that many of them had either seen or heard about. And then there were the miracles. They were so powerful and so real that, that the resident magician even comes to a point where he knew he couldn't compare. Like the magicians in Pharaoh's court and Nebuchadnezzar's false prophets, Simon in his trickery was no match for the true power of God. So he and his men and many of his town folk head on down to the river and get baptized. And they acknowledge that their place is outside of God's plan, but now they were going to go on public record and recognize Jesus and identify with him. 
But that's about where Simon's faith development stopped. His life from that point on was not one of metamorphosis, but of mimicking. He looked the part, he was present at the right things, and he worked hard to befriend the right people. But he didn't allow the Word of God to take root in his life. When we offer discipleship to new believers, our task is not to get them looking the part, but living it. By doing this, they separate themselves from the old habits of their lives and they live in pursuit of God's will, not their own. You see, by looking Godward in all that we do, we become more like Him and our faith gets deeper. By looking selfward, like Simon did, we remain shallow and insecure individuals with impure motives. A true disciple draws his as yet unseen applause from heaven. One day we will see it happen. One day we will stand in God's presence and he will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. A false disciple is always looking for the immediate and temporal approval of men. They get the outside looking right because it suits their status, but the inside never improves. Jesus hammered the Pharisees on this issue, calling them whitewashed tombs at one stage because they looked all nice and clean, squeaky clean on the front, but on the inside they were dead and smelly. True disciples allow their faith to go deep. And as a church, we need to begin getting ready to take these sort of believers on that sort of journey. As new believers come in, we need to model how deep our faith really is. If we are people of faith, we need to model how deep it really is. How real is our faith? People are going to see it. People are going to draw from us. So we need to model how deep our faith is. And we need to model what deep faith looks like. But we also need to create an environment that facilitates new believers getting deep in their faith. We need to look for ways to train them and to teach them. Second, true believers pursue character. Christian uh, Simon, in his falsity, pursued power and relied on his charisma, not his character. We see here that the apostles are laying their hands on the Samaritan believers. The Holy Spirit is coming upon these people and these new believers are experiencing something amazing. This was a special thing for the apostles to have done because they made the full measure of the Holy Spirit of Jesus available to the Samaritans. And in doing so, they also gave these once despised and misunderstood people the full endorsement of the Hebraic-based Jerusalem church. There's an emboldening that is happening in this, in this new church. Some are suddenly acting and speaking with greater wisdom and it's helping them make better Christian choices. Some have gotten fresh courage and insight and some are being able to articulate the faith they just embraced with boldness and even surprising clarity. Some may have been able to believe for big things and see miracles. Others may have demonstrated charismatic gifts that built up and encouraged the entire group of believers. And in the middle of this, this is a, we're standing here, when we read this, we're seeing a joyous occasion. There's, there's a solemnness here because the, the apostles are getting blown away that God is becoming available outside of the original people of the promise. And, and the apostles seeing this, this is, gonna blow, this is blowing their mind. And, and when news got back to Jerusalem, it completely turned upside down their theology for a bit there. This was a huge thing happening. But all Simon saw was the outward flow and the new power these believers were experiencing. 
he saw joy and happiness that was transmitted by what he thought was magical hands. He interpreted this, this as power to be obtained. And for him, in his trade, the source of another power supply that he could use. He had no clue of the theology or purpose or anything that was going on, and he didn't care for it either. For him, this was just another way of using the spiritual realm to, uh, to manipulate others. He saw it nothing more as spiritual magic. And in his complete ignorance, uh, we see that he, goes, he just goes and does something really silly to try and get this apostolic power and goes up to the Peter and John and goes, how much for this laying on of hands secret power thing? Let me, let, you know, give me this power. Yeah, here, I'll give you some cash for it. Simon wanted the power that the apostles appeared to have. But he didn't understand the character that it took to use it. People by nature like to be on top of the stack. We like to climb corporate ladders. We like to work our way up pecking orders. We like the recognition that comes with every achievement. And we like the authority that we receive when we're at the top of the stack as well. Power is an addictive thing. We seek knowledge because knowledge is power. We seek promotions because position equals power. We seek a stage or a soapbox because having a voice endorsed by others puts us in a place of power. The power the world gives out out there is on the basis of how much charisma a person displays. People like you, people draw to you, therefore you should be empowered. We see that in politicians all the time, don't we? They have charisma, but they have absolutely no character about their lives. There's no substance. There's nothing about them where we go, man, we, we go, wow, I like that person, so I'll vote for them, but I don't like what they are, so I don't want to be like them. I don't get it. People are fickle. The trouble with this thinking is that power on the foundation of charisma alone is prone to abuse. Simon had every intention of paying for this power as an investment, and he would in turn receive payment to, power, to pass this power on. In his mind, he was ready to abuse the system. But the truth is this. True biblical and ecclesiastical power is bestowed to people who have good character. We'll see in 1 Timothy 3 that leadership in the church has to have some runs under their belt in the, you know, before they're appointed. You know, elders are not allowed to be novices and, you know, and, and, you know, and deacons have to have, be tested for authenticity. This is, you know, we can't be giving power to people without testing character first. That's a scriptural precedent throughout all of Scripture. We see this. God's more concerned about the hearts of men and not their gifts or their, po- or their popularity. He's concerned about their motives and concerned about the inner workings of a person and the depth of their character before. And he's not, not a, nowhere near as concerned as the charisma or the drawing power that we have. When we have character, God gives us the ability to draw for the right reasons. Had a young fella in our youth group back in Perth and he came to the Lord really fast. And he was really, his life was, he allowed Jesus to revolutionize his life. It was a really huge thing, huge deal. And, but very early in the piece, he wanted to join me and become a youth leader with me. He was a 19-year-old guy, 18-year-old guy, and he was yeah, very keen and very charismatic. Very, everyone sort of loved him. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a perfect guy to have in our team. But I knew that his character still needed some work. And so I deliberately held off on appointing this guy. And he was patient with me, and he kept nagging me and nagging me, but he was still patient. And then one day, I was at a big youth event, and he and I were loading boxes of Bibles like we had about a thousand Bibles to wheel into a back room because my job was to make sure that kids who responded to the gospel were hooked up with youth groups and stuff. And 
we're sitting, we, he's just worked for ages, unloading these boxes, we put them into the room, and then we're cutting up forms. And as we're cutting up these forms together, he turns around to me and goes, after all that he's seen in the team and how he's seen me work and stuff like that, he goes, if I didn't know better, I think you were using me as a youth leader right now. Cutting up pieces of paper in a back room. Right there, I said, good, you're now on my team. That was an amazing moment right there. See, when new believers come in, we must at all times promote character as a prerequisite for empowerment. And finally, true disciples receive correction well. Simon refused correction big time. We see here that Peter is offended at the notion that a God-given gift could be purchased, and rightly so. Peter is also the one who needs to administer correction here, and rightly so again. Peter has a proven track record of spirit-led discernment, and he demonstrated that with, when he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. He knew that the attitude of Simon here was symptomatic of a deeper issue within him, and his heart was not truly set apart for God like the rest of the Samaritan believers. So, he calls him on it. The Phillips translation gives a really colorful and accurate picture of Peter's comments here. Look at it, and I studied the Greek. I can, back, I can verify this. This is how he writes it. This is Peter's response according to J.B. Phillips in the 40s. To hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God for money? You have no share or part in this manner, for your heart is not honest before God. All you can do now is to repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the evil intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I can see inside you, and I see a man bitter with jealousy and bound with his own sin. To hell with you and your money. The original Greek says, your silver go to destruction with you. Destruction, hell, that's how it sort of works. People call me harsh. <laughs> Simon did some right things. But Peter makes it clear here that he, this incident highlighted where he was really at. He was not on track to being embraced by the rest of the church. He was a threat and he was a hypocrite. He hadn't separated himself from his old ways and his motives for getting involved with this new faith community were severely tainted. He needed to truly repent and do it fast because his heart was dark. And if he rejected the truth, now, he who knew how far from God this guy would actually get? We see at this point that Peter and the apostles had done all they could for Simon. They showed the truth of the gospel by word and deed. They showed what true repentance and transformation really looked like. And they showed that there was a supernatural power available to anyone wanting to follow Jesus. They wouldn't have to go it alone. The rest was up to Simon to decide for himself and to make his own choices. Unfortunately, Simon didn't get it. His faith was nothing more than superstition, and he simply asked the apostles to pray for him. You know all that stuff you just said? Please ask God not to do it. He wasn't worried about his heart. He was worried about the consequences. Not everyone who was witnessed to will receive the word with joy and gladness. In fact, some will increase in hostility. Over time, Simon Magus became well known to the church fathers, and they had a lot to say about him over the years. In the second century, we read about the Samaritan Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, who wrote at length about him and verified his status in the Samaritan community. 
And later in the second century, the bishop Irenaeus described him as the author of all sorts of heresies and was traced by he and others of his time as one of the originators of the Gnostic doctrine. His legacy in some circles even today is a word in our church vocabulary, simony, meaning to buy or sell a church office or promise, promise a spiritual favor. Correction is part and parcel with discipleship. How many know it's part and parcel with raising children? And new believers are spiritual infants. People who are taking first steps in Christ are, are, are infants. We've got, to be treat, we've got to treat them as delicate like infants. And we need to be loving with them and we need to take care of their needs because they don't know how to take care of them themselves yet. But part of that is also an element of discipline as well. Pointing to the right ways to go. They need instruction and they need correction as they engage in their first steps. We see here, though, that the right people have to give it. Ones who can genuinely deliver it with the right spirit, with the right element of love and the right, with the right concern like a caring parent would. If you can care deeply for a person so lovingly and go, listen, out of love, I'm going to bring correction, then you are the right person to do so. There's a trend I've begun to notice with teenagers in our city here. Parents are getting scared to give correction to them because they're fearful that they'll drive their rebellious kids away. What they don't realize is that their kids wouldn't last five minutes on the street and will come crawling back to their playstations if they stand their ground. But there's a big trend where people don't want to, they avoid confrontation or they avoid discipline because they don't want to come across like they don't love their kids. If you don't discipline, the complete opposite is in place. Today we tend to put off bringing correction in the life of the church because we don't want to hurt or lose individuals. The hassle is you're going to lose them anyway because their heart isn't right. It's in ours and the church's interest and in theirs. To bring, it's in their interest as well to bring appropriate correction so the son can be saved. So there's the picture of solid discipleship. That's the early steps of discipleship right there. Take new believers on a journey of going deeper in their faith. Not, don't have it surface level and go, yeah, here I am just making appearances, but what's really going on in their heart? Teach new believers about Christian character. Teach them that it's not about charisma and how much people like you, it's about how much Jesus thinks of your heart. And teach new believers about Christian, and don't be afraid to correct, making sure we do so out of a spirit of love. I want to draw this to a conclusion right now. There's a video I watched this week where some credible pastors were asking whether or not we dilute the process of discipleship in church today. And I think the modern church sometimes does. Sometimes we do dilute our, our, our um, discipleship processes. We measure the success of evangelism by gauging the number of people who said the prayer. And really, that's about 1% of the task at hand. If Philip had just said, had got those guys and they all put their faith in Jesus and he baptized them and he walked away without calling the, disciples, the apostles to help, he'd only done 1% of the job for the Samaritans and the Samaritan church wouldn't have lasted five seconds. During the English Great Awakening in the late 18th century, George Whitfield saw thousands of people do that. He traveled as an evangelist. But he never considered that the mark of success. Instead, he wanted to know how they were going six to 12 months later. And only then would he comment on the success or failure of any evangelistic exploit or any work that he would do. My challenge last week was that we as the Hebraic church in our Jerusalem context 
need to release Hellenistic evangelists to go reach into our Samaria. And once we've done that, we are to embrace our new Samaritan brothers and sisters and bring them into the family of God, not withholding any part of our amazing faith from them. This week, in the wake of the things we looked at this morning, we see the way we're to do that. As a church, our job description is clear. Take the incoming Samaritans on a journey of discipleship where they get as deep as we are in our understanding of faith and where they get as strong in character as we are and where we bring the right line of correction to them in order to see them achieve their Christian best. Then when they get there, they can also join us in providing the same sort of care to others. That's the plan of discipleship right there. The great commission is to make disciples, not just get people to say the salvation prayer. It takes evangelists to go reach them, but it takes a whole church community to grow them.